The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Please pray with me. Father, as we come to your word now, we do pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would take your word and it's the very marrow of our bones, the depths of our souls, that we might be changed. And Father, we pray this, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We pray this in the name of our, your son, Jesus, who is our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Have any of you seen the movie The Irishman? It was a Netflix movie several years ago. It was nominated for 10 Oscars. The joke about the movie is that it's incredibly long. It's a story about the legacy of a man. The first two hours, Erin was with me, and then she fell asleep, and I followed after the next two hours. It's about a four-hour movie. Martin Scorsese directed it. And because it's so long, and because it's about the legacy of a man named Frank Sheeran, who was a hitman for the mob, people have wondered if in some way this is Martin Scorsese writing and directing a movie about his own legacy as a movie director. But as I mentioned, the movie is about Frank Sheeran, who's a hitman for the mob. And when we first meet him at the beginning of the movie, at the end of the movie, he's all alone in a wheelchair in a nursing home. And he begins to narrate by talking to the camera, to the audience, to us about his legacy, his legacy of violence and murder and betrayal and especially culminating in his murder of the infamous Teamster boss, Jimmy Hoffa, who disappeared in 1975, and no one really knows what happened to him. And Frank said, it was me. I did it. But in the movie, Frank's good friend is Jimmy. But he kills Jimmy on behalf of his mob bosses in order to continue to build the mob empire and the gangster empire. At the end of the movie, Frank's last words, while he's sitting in his nursing home all alone, is leave the door open, which actually is a famous motif for gangster movies and mobster movies. I don't know if you know this, but at the end of The Godfather, after Michael Corleone has established himself as the Godfather, after killing his brother-in-law, he's in a room surrounded by all his consiglieres, and they're all talking to him, and his wife is on the other side of the door, and she says, did you kill your brother-in-law? And he doesn't say anything, and they shut the door in her face. In a movie that Martin Scorsese directed in The Goodfellas, there's a guy named Henry Hill who was also a hitman for the mob and did all this horrible stuff. And at the end of the movie, he turns witness protection and he rats out the mob and you find him in a nondescript suburban environment. He's just a regular, normal guy. And you think, I think he got away with all the evil that he did. And he shuts the door in your face and that's the end of the movie. But here in The Irishman, 
the door is not shut. In the other movies, it's like the door's shut. Michael got away with it. Now he's going to build his gangster empire and no one can stop him. Henry Hill shuts the door and he's like, he got away with it. He'll never face justice. But here, Scorsese, I think, is asking by leaving the door open, was Frank's legacy that he just described to you in the last four hours, was it worth it? And did he really get away with it? And in the room, in the dark, and in the gloom, at Christmas, actually, no less, he's alone. No family, no visitors, abandoned by his dearest daughter, Peggy. In fact, the nurse comes in at one point, and he's talking to her, and he asks if she knows who Jimmy Hoffa is, and she has no idea who Jimmy Hoffa is. So even his greatest act, no one even remembers. And as the camera pans out, he looks small, insignificant, forgotten, and then it immediately cuts to black, as if Frank died. And Scorsese is asking, was it worth it? And I think he's saying no. And I bring all this up, this movie about a legacy, because our passage this morning, all three chapters of it, uh, Jordan was joking that as we read this Old Testament passage, it was going to be like an ax and someone's going to fall asleep and fall out the window. <laughs> almost did. I almost did. But this long story is about a legacy, about Israel's legacy, about Jephthah, the main character's legacy in this passage. And it asks us, what legacies are we creating? And what are you willing to sacrifice to create that legacy? So today from Jephthah's story, two things. First, a legacy desired and then redirected and redeemed. A legacy desired, then redirected and redeemed. First is the legacy. And Israel's legacy is what we see first. As we said in Judges all throughout the series, all throughout the series, in Judges, Israel cycles downward, devolving and declining. And we get a full picture of that in the story. Look at verse 6 here in chapter 10. This repeated phrase that we know so well, Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And all the other times that we've seen this in the book of Judges, it's nondescript. They just did what was evil on the side of the Lord. But here now we get seven different named gods that Israel is serving. This is the evil that they are doing. Evil is getting specific. And even the number seven in the Bible signifies something to us. It signifies totality and completeness, like in the completeness of the weak. So the suggestion being offered here is that Israel's abandonment of God is becoming total. It's becoming complete. Notice also the word here, serve, that's used in verses 6 and 12 and 16. The Hebrew root word here, abad, which doesn't just mean serve as in like, I serve you lunch. It means to serve as in serve like a slave. It means to be enslaved. In other words, Israel is devolving backwards into slavery, like back in Egypt. No longer Egypt, but be choosing now to be enslaved by themselves. It's why God's first act of saving that he mentions as a rebuttal to all of Israel's sins and legacy is verse 11 here is that I saved you from Egypt when you were physically enslaved in Egypt. I brought you out of that. I saved you. In other words, why are you choosing to continue to enslave yourselves again? This is Israel's legacy in Judges. But you know, it's always also sin's legacy. You know this. This is what sin does. You begin by choosing to do something that you know you should not do, and it hurts you. It hurts you in the soul. Your stomach aches. Your conscience stings. You say, I'm never going to do that again. But then over time, those feelings go away. You say, it wasn't that bad. I got over it. I feel better. I shouldn't do this again, but you decide to do it again. 
And then suddenly, as Tim likes to say, you aren't doing sin anymore. Now sin is doing you. You thought it would serve you, but you end up serving it. And so I wonder, in this season of Lent, where we do give attention to sin, is this a season of repentance for you? Of putting away your sin, of killing it, of mortifying, of turning to Jesus, or is it just a pause? A pause to let the bad feelings and the harsh consequences go away. In Judges, Israel's legacy is that it's just a pause. When do they want God? Only in distress. Only when the stomach hurts and the consequences feel heavy. Then they want God, and they're trying to manipulate him to come to their side to do the thing that they want him to do. And God calls them out on this. Do you see this? In verses 12 and 13 here, he says, I've seen this song you danced before. I saved you from all these places. Ironically, he says, I've saved you seven times, even as you're enslaved to these seven different gods. And yet, he says in verse 13, yet I save you, and yet you keep choosing these other gods. God is saying, you're trying to manipulate me. I know what you're doing. And Jephthah, in this story, is doing the same as Israel. He also tries to manipulate God. See, if Israel's legacy of devolution and decline is being revealed here, Jephthah is being revealed as a man who desperately desires a legacy for himself. Verse 30 here, this infamous vow that Jephthah makes about the sacrifice. He says, whatever comes out of my house, Lord, I will give it to you if you let me win this battle. God, give me what I want, and I will give you something in return, he basically says. The question is, what does Jephthah want? What does he desire? What's he willing to sacrifice for? Now, this chapter, these three chapters here are so long, we had to cut a lot, but I wanted to give some of the context to illuminate what Jephthah's goal is. You know, the story here is being sandwiched between two sets of judges at the very beginning of our passage in chapter 10 and the very end of our passage in chapter 12. In those two sets, you'll see verse chapter 10 here is Jair, who is also from Gilead, just like Jephthah. He's a Gileadite. And then in chapter 12, we have this guy named Izbon, or Ibzons, rather. And they both have what? Huge family legacies and lineages. Jair has 30 sons. Donkeys were a sign of authority. He has 30 sons on 30 donkeys exercising his authority out into the world in their control of 30 different cities. And in chapter 12, you have Ibzan, who has 60 descendants, double what Jair had. And he's increasing his legacy outside of his own clan through political alliances and political marriages with his sons and bringing other daughters in to marry his sons. And I didn't, it's not printed, but after Ibzan is a guy named Abdon who has 40 sons and 30 grandsons. And they all have donkeys, 70 donkeys mounting, going around, extending his authority and legacy. And what is in between those stories? Jephthah. And what happens to Jephthah? Chapter 11, verse 2, he's disinherited. He's kicked out of the tribe. He's kicked away from his family. He's forgotten about until they need him. And then did you catch what the negotiation is between Jephthah and the elders of Gilead? The elders of Gilead are in distress now because of the Ammonites. And what do they want? Verse 6, they say, Jephthah, come back. I know we kicked you out, but we need somebody. You're a mighty warrior. We need somebody to lead us in battle. Please come back. And Jephthah knows what's going on here. He says, you hate me. You kick me out. But then Jephthah says, well, I'm going to use this as leverage to get what I want. And what does Jephthah do? He negotiates with the elders of Gilead so that he can become the head, so that he can become not just a leader in battle, but the leader of the entire tribe. He wants to be judge over all of Gilead and take the place of a guy like Jair with his 30 sons. 
The forgotten, disinherited, rejected warrior desires his own legacy to make a name for himself, to create a royal line and build an empire. So at the end of chapter 11, what does he do? He makes a vow of sacrifice to God to ensure that he will get his legacy. You know, we're all consciously or unconsciously building a legacy. Do you know that? Really, every time you wonder what people are thinking about you and you want them to think a certain thing, you're building a legacy. And anytime you think, what do people remember about me? You're building a legacy, a legacy of your name and your reputation. Of course, when you try to build something to leave behind to others, to put your name on it, to build something, a family, a business, a ministry, a church, any of those things, you are building a legacy. And you do have to sacrifice on the way there. So what are you sacrificing to build that legacy? Are you like Jephthah here? Are you or have you sacrificed your own children to the legacy of financial stability and career success that you are ostensibly trying to leave behind for them? Or are you sacrificing your integrity for a legacy of a few moments of pleasure? Are you sacrificing your relationships and your friendships so you can build a legacy of always being right and never being wrong? Are you sacrificing your very soul so that people will always remember what you did and who you are? Then remember, as Jephthah learns here in this story, you cannot manipulate God. You cannot trick him. He isn't a cosmic gambler or a cosmic bargainer. Jesus said this in the Gospels. What will it profit you to gain the entire world but lose your soul? And he said, if you try to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose it to me, you will find it. In other words, if you build a legacy for yourself where you are the point of your legacy, you will lose it. And that is exactly what happens to Jephthah in the story. You see, when victorious warriors in the Old Testament returned from battle, they would have the people of their tribe and their house come out to greet them, victorious warriors and heroes, dancing and singing and, tabor- and, and banging tambourines. And Jephthah expects that to happen when he negotiates with God here and makes this vow of sacrifice. He expects that he's going to come back victorious, and so his household is going to come out to greet him. And he assumes, if that happens, his legacy is going to be established, his inheritance secure, so he can sacrifice to God some of his house. I assume he thought a servant was going to come out. But what happens? His daughter comes out. Now, this doesn't need to be said. She isn't being burned alive. I know it says burnt offering here, but as I've mentioned before, burnt offering, the Hebrew word actually is the word olah, which just means go up. Literally, the Hebrew says here, I will offer it to you as a go up. Because in the burnt offering sacrifice, the Olah sacrifice, everything is burned up and sent up into heaven. And it's a symbolic picture of going up into the presence of the Lord. And in fact, when a priest was ordained to temple service, the sacrifice that he had to make was an Olah sacrifice because he was going up into the presence of God in the temple. But not only that, if you pay attention to Mary while she was reading this, all the contextual clues do not point to her being burned alive as a sacrifice, but as something else. In verse 34 here, what is the focus? She is his only child. He doesn't have a son. He doesn't have another daughter. He is losing his lineage. Not only that, she doesn't mourn her life. 
If she's going, she wants her virginity. I mean, if she hears, I'm going to burn you alive, and she's like, oh, I never had the chance to have sex. That's not what she's going on here. That's not what she's saying. What she is saying is, I am losing the chance to be married and have children. I'm going to be consecrated into service in the temple. And Jephthah's legacy and his lineage, the thing that he was sacrificing to obtain, is gone. Notice at the end of the passage, he only rules for six years. This is what brings him low and troubles him. He tried to manipulate God, and he ends up losing the very thing he was sacrificing to gain. What about Jephthah's daughter? She sort of meekly accepts her fate, right, and loses her legacy. Of course, that's what she is mourning. You need to know that in the Old Testament, every Israelite woman hoped for and prayed that they would be the mother of the promised Messiah. They all hoped and prayed that they would be the one to bring forth the one that was promised to Eve, who would crush the serpent's head, that they would be the one who would bring forth the seed that was promised to Abraham, that they would be the one who would be the mother of the one who would put all wrong things right. That's why in the Old Testament there's so much attention that is given to women who are barren. Because it's as if to say, how is this going to happen? You made all these promises of a physical descendant who will save us, but all these women, God, aren't able to have children because God is showing that he is graciously, sovereignly going to do it out of his own power and grace. So here's Jephthah, and here's Jephthah's daughter, who is losing her chance and her hope and her legacy to become physically a part of the Messiah's line. But she is redirected into God's eternal legacy. And in doing that, she becomes, listen now, she becomes a sign to all of us, to the church universal, the bride of Christ, a sign of a willing, living sacrifice who redirects their own legacy to God. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is often referred to as the daughter of Zion, the daughter of Zion. Well, what does the daughter of Zion keep doing in Judges? It keeps turning from the true worship of God. It keeps trying to manipulate God and building for this world and with the powerful things of this world. And what do they do in the process? All throughout Judges, they keep losing their soul and finding themselves enslaved to sin and to idols again and again and again. But here's Jephthah's daughter, a picture of the true daughter of Zion, who's redirecting Israel back to worship of God and redemption found in God. God is essentially saying to Israel, to Gilead and to Jephthah and to us through Jephthah's daughter, that God's legacy does not reside in power and strength and manipulation and success and impressive people and impressive things, but rather in self-giving, humble love and trust in God. I mean, this is how Christ builds his own legacy. As Paul says in Philippians, he humbled himself to death even death upon a cross. His legacy is not in violence, political negotiation. That is actually what all the disciples wanted him to do. And also, it's not even in children and a lineage and a legacy. Those are all the things that Jephthah wanted. But Christ has no royal line, no children to be nepotistic with and build a political power base. But Christ has you. And if you are connected to him to by faith and by baptism, then you become his eternal lineage. 
You become his eternal legacy, redirected and redeemed in Jesus. In other words, the church is Jephthah's daughter. You are Jephthah's daughter. In fact, that's what we heard in our New Testament reading from Romans 12. Did you see this? What does Paul say? Present your bodies just like Jephthah's daughter presenting herself to the temple. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. This is your spiritual worship. Just like Jephthah going to present herself at the temple to worship God. We'll say it here in a moment when Adam leaves us in the Eucharist as well. What will we say? We offer to you ourselves, our souls, and our bodies so that our legacies may no longer be conformed to this world and its obsession with power and ability and success and pride. But instead, our abilities can be transformed and redirected by the renewing of our mind and the renewing of our desires through Christ's redemption. And so what is the evidence that our lives are being redirected and that we are living as living sacrifices? Well, one evidence is Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Normally, when we read through Romans chapter 12, we sort of bracket off verses 1 and 2 as a standalone all by itself. And we don't usually read on to verse 3, but in verse 3, Paul makes an immediate application. If you are offering yourself as a living sacrifice, if you're not being conformed to the world any longer, if your mind is being transformed, then you must not think of yourself more highly than you ought, he says. In other words, humility is the mark of Christ's eternal legacy. And a humble Christ makes those who are united to him a humble people. So are you building a legacy that's marked in humility? In the businesses that you are building, the community you're forming, the friendships that you are making, the children you are raising, the schools you support, the charities you fund, the church that you build, the words you use, and the very thoughts that you think, do they make you high on yourself? Are you the point? Or does it make Christ high? And does it lift others up? Do you know who Raquel Welch is? If you're in my generation, you probably don't. But if you are a generation above me, you may. She uh, was a superstar in Hollywood in the 60s and 70s. And she starred in sort of our kind of breakout role was this movie called One Million Years B.C. And if you don't know her and you don't know the movie, you probably may be familiar with the iconic poster that sort of launched her into being a bombshell and sort of a sex icon for the 70s. She's on the beach, and behind her are a bunch of dinosaurs coming out. You know, it's a million years B.C. coming out, and she is standing in an animal skin bikini. It's a very iconic sort of Hollywood picture. But she wrote a memoir several years ago, and this is what she says in it. It's really beautiful. I love this quote, actually. She says, after yoga, after menopause, after, her, after my divorces, after dating, after the whole nine yards, after my mother's death and my sister's career, I came back to Jesus and I offered a small prayer and he heard me. You know, she ended up in a PCA church in Glendale, California for the last two decades of her life. And at the end of her memoir, I want you to hear the legacy that she writes about the humility of this church that she was a part of and of how that worked into the humility in her own life. She said it was a beautiful church. The members weren't Hollywood types. They were modest, unassuming, cheerful, and friendly. And she says this, maybe I didn't belong among these people who actually practice their faith. Humility that was at work in her own soul. And then she says this at the end. These are the last words of her memoir. 
And there, as I affirm my beliefs and worship, I'm just Raquel, not anybody special. And she died a faithful member of that church, redeemed as a living sacrifice to Christ, humble and loving. But one more thing to say this, this morning, because this morning it may feel that what I've just told you and about your legacy might feel impossible. You may feel like more like Frank than Raquel, sitting in that dark, small room, knowing that your legacy is already tarnished. Perhaps you've destroyed your family, destroyed others in relationships over money, that your conscience is so scarred that you no longer feel joy. You've burned so many bridges that you are basically alone on an island. You're so frightened, you're immobile, you're so arrogant that no one can stand you. Then I would say this, all legacies, no matter how sordid, no matter how low, can be redirected and redeemed in Jesus. Because where does Christ begin his own legacy? Naked, dying on a cross. Abandoned and deserted by his followers and friends. Abandoned by God himself. Exposed before the entire world. You cannot get lower than that. And he begins there. Why? So that he can meet you however low you might be and however low your legacy might seem to meet you and redirect you and redeem you. At the end of the Irishman, there's only one person who will visit Frank anymore, a priest. And I think Scorsese is saying that God comes to this man with a destroyed legacy and he says to him, there is still time to repent. And you see this priest with Frank. And Frank is sort of mumbling half-heartedly, not very well. He doesn't know the words. A prayer of repentance. Forgiveness is still on offer. No one is too low for Christ. No legacy too sordid. And I think there's another reason why Frank asked for that door to be left open and why Scorsese leaves that door open. Because the last person who walks through that door and keeps it open is that priest who would just walk through that prayer of repentance. Christ will still redeem you. He will still redirect you. My friends, the door is always open. All you must do is walk through it and embrace Christ. And your legacy can be wrapped into the beautiful, humble, and righteous legacy of Christ. That can be you today, right now. Walk through that door and let him redeem and redirect you into his eternal legacy. Amen. Father, we do thank you for your son, Jesus, who was low and humble, riding on a donkey, rejected and despised by many a man of sorrows, yet came low to meet us who were low not waiting for us to become righteous and good and beautiful and successful, but meeting us in the very pit that he might lift us up to you. So, Father, may we embrace your son Jesus and hold to him and so participate in his eternal legacy of love and humility. In Christ's name, amen.